0: CHAPTER Two, PART One, OF A PORTRAIT OF THE ARTIST AS A YOUNG MAN BY JAMES JOYCE This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines Uncle Charles smoked such black twist that at last his nephew suggested to him to enjoy his morning smoke in a little outhouse at the end of the garden. "'Very good, Simon. All serene, Simon,' said the old man, tranquilly. "'Anywhere you like.' the outhouse'll do me nicely, twill be more salubrious." "'Damn me!' said Mr. Daedalus, frankly, if I know how you can smoke such villainous awful tobacco. "'Tis like gunpowder, by God!' "'It's very nice, Simon,' replied the old man, very cool and mollifying." Every morning, therefore, Uncle Charles repaired to his outhouse, but not before he had greased and brushed scrupulously his back hair, and brushed and put on his tall hat. While he smoked, the brim of his tall hat and the bowl of his pipe were just visible beyond the jams of the outhouse door. His arbour, as he called the reeking outhouse which he shared with the cat and the garden tools, served him also as a sounding-box, and every morning he hummed contentedly one of his favourite songs, O oh, twine me a bower, or blue eyes and golden hair, or the groves of Blarney, while the grey and blue coils of smoke rose slowly from his pipe and vanished in the pure air. During the first part of the summer in Black Rock Uncle Charles was Stephen's constant companion. Uncle Charles was a hale old man with a well-tanned skin, rugged features and white side-whiskers. On weekdays he did messages between the house in Carysford Avenue and those shops in the main street of the town with which the family dealt. Stephen was glad to go with him on these errands, for Uncle Charles helped him very liberally to handfuls of whatever was exposed in open boxes and barrels outside the counter. He would seize a handful of grapes and sawdust, or three or four American apples, and thrust them generously into his grand nephew's hand while the shopman smiled uneasily, and, on Stephen's feigning reluctance to take them, he would frown and say, "'Take them, sir. Do you hear me, sir? They're good for your bowels.' When the order-list had been booked, The two would go on to the park where an old friend of Stephen's father, Mike Flynn, would be found seated on a bench waiting for them. Then would begin Stephen's run round the park. Mike Flynn would stand at the gate near the railway station, watch in hand, while Stephen ran round the track in the style Mike Flynn favoured, his head high lifted, his knees well lifted, and his hands held straight down by his sides. When the morning practice was over the trainer would make his comments and sometimes illustrate them by shuffling along for a yard or so comically in an old pair of blue canvas shoes. A small ring of wonder-struck children and nursemaids would gather to watch him and linger even when he and Uncle Charles had sat down again and were talking athletics and politics. Though he had heard his father say that Mike Flynn had put some of the best runners of modern times through his hands, stephen often glanced at his trainer's flabby stubble-covered face as it bent over the long-stained fingers through which he rolled his cigarette and with pity at the mild lustreless blue eyes which would look up suddenly from the task and gaze vaguely into the blue distance while the long swollen fingers ceased their rolling and grains and fibres of tobacco fell back into the pouch on the way home uncle charles would often pay a visit to the chapel and, as the font was above Stephen's reach, the old man would dip his hand and then sprinkle the water briskly about Stephen's clothes and on the floor of the porch. While he prayed he knelt on his red handkerchief and read above his breath from a thumb-blackened prayer-book wherein catchwords were printed at the foot of every page. Stephen knelt at his side, respecting, though he did not share, his piety. He often wondered what his granduncle prayed for so seriously. Perhaps he prayed for the souls in purgatory, or for the grace of a happy death, or perhaps he prayed that God might send him back a part of the big fortune he had squandered in Cork. On Sundays Stephen, with his father and his granduncle, took their constitutional. The old man was a nimble walker in spite of his corns, and often ten or twelve miles of the road were covered. The little village of Stillorgan was the parting of the ways. Either they went to the left towards the Dublin Mountains, or along the Goatstown Road and thence into Dundrum, coming home by Sandyford. Trudging along the road or standing in some grimy wayside public-house, his elders spoke constantly of the subjects nearer their hearts—of Irish politics, of Munster, and of the legends of their own family, to all of which Stephen lent an avid ear. Words which he did not understand, he said over and over to himself till he had learnt them by heart, and through them he had glimpses of the real world about them. The hour when he too would take part in the life of that world seemed drawing near, and in secret he began to make ready for the great part which he felt awaited him, the nature of which he only dimly apprehended. His evenings were his own, and he pored over a ragged translation of the Count of Monte Cristo, the figure of that dark avenger stood forth in his mind for whatever he had heard or divined in childhood of the strange and terrible. At night he built up on the parlour-table an image of the wonderful island cave, out of transfers and paper-flowers and coloured tissue-paper, and strips of the silver and golden paper in which chocolate is wrapped. When he had broken up this scenery, weary of its tinsel, there would come into his mind the bright picture of Marseilles, of sunny trellises, and of mercedes outside black rock on the road that led to the mountains stood a small whitewashed house in the garden of which grew many rose bushes and in this house he told himself another mercedes lived both on the outward and on the homeward journey he measured distance by this landmark and in his imagination he lived through a long train of adventures marvelous as those in the book itself towards the close of which there appeared an image of himself grown older and sadder, standing in a moonlit garden with Mercedes who had, so many years before, slighted his love, and with a sadly proud gesture of refusal, saying, "'Madam, I never eat muscatel grapes.' He became the ally of a boy named Aubrey Mills and founded with him a gang of adventurers in the avenue. Aubrey carried a whistle dangling from his buttonhole and a bicycle lamp attached to his belt while the others had short sticks thrust dagger-wise through theirs. Stephen, who had read of Napoleon's plain style of dress, chose to remain unadorned and thereby heightened for himself the pleasure of taking counsel with his lieutenant before giving orders. The gang made forays into gardens of old maids, or went down to the castle and fought a battle on the shaggy weed-grown rocks, coming home after it weary stragglers, with the stale odours of the foreshore in their nostrils, and the rank oils of the sea-rack upon their hands and in their hair. Aubrey and Stephen had a common milkman, and often they drove out in the milk-car to Carrick Mines where the cows were at grass. While the men were milking the boys would take turns in riding the tractable mare round the field. But when autumn came and the cows were driven home from the grass, and the first sight of the filthy cow-yard at Stradbrook with its foul green puddles, and clots of liquid dung and steaming bran troughs sickened Stephen's heart. The cattle, which had seemed so beautiful in the country on sunny days, revolted him, and he could not even look at the milk they yielded. The coming of September did not trouble him this year, for he was not to be sent back to Clongowes. The practice in the park came to an end when Mike Flynn went into hospital. Aubrey was at school and had only an hour or two free in the evening. The gang fell asunder and there were no more nightly forays or battles on the rocks. Stephen sometimes went round with the car which delivered the evening milk, and these chilly drives blew away his memory of the filth of the cow-yard, and he felt no repugnance at seeing the cow-hairs and hay-seeds on the milkman's coat. Whenever a car drew up before a house he waited to catch a glimpse of a well-scrubbed kitchen or of a softly lighted hall and to see how the servant would hold the jug and how she would close the door. He thought it would be a pleasant life enough, driving along the roads every evening to deliver milk, if he had warm gloves and a fat bag of ginger nuts in his pocket to eat from. But the same foreknowledge which had sickened his heart and made his legs sag suddenly as he raced round the park, the same intuition which had made him glance with mistrust at his trainer's flabby stubble-covered face as it bent heavily over his long-stained fingers, dissipated any vision of the future. In a vague way he understood that his father was in trouble and that this was the reason why he himself had not been sent back to Clongos. For some time he had felt the slight change in his house, and those changes in what he had deemed unchangeable were so many slight shocks to his boyish conception of the world. The ambition which he felt astir at times in the darkness of his soul sought no outlet. A dusk like that of the outer world obscured his mind as he heard the mare's hoofs clattering along the tram-track on the rock road and the great can swaying and rattling behind him. He returned to Mercedes and, as he brooded upon her image, a strange unrest crept into his blood. Sometimes a fever gathered within him and led him to rove alone in the evening along the quiet avenue. The peace of the gardens and the kindly lights in the windows poured a tender influence into his restless heart. The noise of children at play annoyed him and their silly voices made him feel, even more keenly than he had felt at Klongo's, that he was different from others. He did not want to play. He wanted to meet in the real world the unsubstantial image which his soul so constantly beheld. He did not know where to seek it or how. But a premonition which led him on told him that this image would, without any overt act of his, encounter him. They would meet quietly as if they had known each other and had made their tryst, perhaps at one of the gates or in some more secret place. They would be alone, surrounded by darkness and silence, and in that moment of supreme tenderness he would be transfigured. He would fade into something impalpable under her eyes, and then in a moment he would be transfigured. Weakness and timidity and inexperience would fall away from him in that magic moment. Two great yellow caravans had halted one morning before the door, and men had come tramping into the house to dismantle it. The furniture had been hustled out through the front garden which was strewn with wisps of straw and rope-ends, and into the huge vans at the gate. When all had been safely stowed the vans had set off noisily down the avenue, and from the window of the railway carriage in which he had sat with his red-eyed mother Stephen had seen them lumbering along the merrion Road. The parlour-fire would not draw that evening, and Mr. Daedalus rested the poker against the bars of the grate to attract the flame. Uncle Charles dozed in a corner of the half-furnished, uncarpeted room, and near him the family portraits leaned against the wall. The lamp on the table shed a weak light over the boarded floor, muddied by the feet of the van-men. Stephen sat on a footstool beside his father, listening to a long and incoherent monologue. He understood little or nothing of it at first, but he became slowly aware that his father had enemies and that some fight was going to take place. He felt, too, that he was being enlisted for the fight, that some duty was being laid upon his shoulders. The sudden flight from the comfort and reverie of Black Rock, the passage through the gloomy foggy city, the thought of the bare cheerless house in which they were now to live, made his heart heavy. And again an intuition, a foreknowledge of the future, came to him. He understood also why the servants had often whispered together in the hall. And why his father had often stood on the hearth-rug with his back to the fire, talking loudly to Uncle Charles, who urged him to sit down and eat his dinner, there's a crack of the whip left in me yet, Stephen old chap said, Mr. dedalus poking at the dull fire with fierce energy. We're not dead yet, sonny, no, but the Lord Jesus, God forgive me, not half dead. Dublin was a new and complex sensation. Uncle Charles had grown so witless that he could no longer be sent out on errands and the disorder in settling in the new house left Stephen freer than he had been in Black Rock. In the beginning he contented himself with circling timidly round the neighbouring square, or, at most, going half-way down one of the side-streets, but when he had made a skeleton map of the city in his mind he followed boldly one of its central lines until he reached the custom-house. He passed unchallenged among the docks and along the quays wondering at the multitude of corks that lay bobbing on the surface of the water in the thick yellow scum, at the crowds of key porters and the rumbling carts, and the ill-dressed bearded policeman. The vastness and strangeness of the life suggested to him by the bales of merchandise stacked along the walls or swung aloft out of the holes of steamers, wakened again in him the unrest which had sent him wandering in the evening from garden to garden in search of Mercedes and amid this new bustling life he might have fancied himself in another Marseilles but that he missed the bright sky and the sun warmed trellises and the wine-shops. A vague dissatisfaction grew up within him as he looked on the quays and on the river and on the lowering skies, and yet he continued to wander up and down day after day as if he really sought someone that eluded him. He went once or twice with his mother to visit their relatives and though they passed the jovial array of shops lit up and adorned for christmas his mood of embittered silence did not leave him the causes of his embitterment were many remote and near he was angry with himself for being young and the prey of restless foolish impulses angry also with the change of fortune which was reshaping the world about him into a vision of squalor and insincerity yet his anger lent nothing to the vision he chronicled with patience what he saw, detaching himself from it and tasting its mortifying flavour in secret. He was sitting on the backless chair in his aunt's kitchen. A lamp with a reflector hung on the japanned wall of the fireplace, and by its light his aunt was reading the evening paper that lay on her knees. She looked a long time at a smiling picture that was set in it and said musingly, "'The beautiful Mabel Hunter!' A ringleted girl stood on tiptoe to peer at the picture and said softly, "'What is she in, mud? "'In a pantomime, love.' The child leaned her ringletted head against her mother's sleeve, gazing on the picture, and murmured, as if fascinated, "'The beautiful Mabel Hunter!' As if fascinated, her eyes rested long upon those demurely taunting eyes, and she murmured devotedly, "'Isn't she an exquisite creature?' and the boy who came in from the street, stamping crookedly under his stone of coal, heard her words. He dropped his load promptly on the floor and hurried to her side to see. He mauled the edges of the paper with his reddened and blackened hands, shouldering her aside and complaining that he could not see. He was sitting in the narrow breakfast-room high up in the old dark-windowed house. The firelight flickered on the wall, and beyond the window a spectral dusk was gathering upon the river. Before the fire an old woman was busy making tea, and as she bustled at the task she told in a low voice of what the priest and the doctor had said. She told, too, of certain changes they had seen in her of late and of her odd ways and sayings. He sat listening to the words and following the ways of adventure that lay open in the coals, arches and vaults and winding galleries and jagged caverns. Suddenly he became aware of something in the doorway. A skull appeared, suspended in the gloom of the doorway. A feeble creature like a monkey was there, drawn thither by the sound of voices at the fire. A whining voice came from the door, asking, "'Is that Josephine?' The old bustling woman answered cheerily from the fireplace. "'No, Ellen, it's Stephen.' "'Oh, oh, good evening, Stephen.' He answered the greeting and saw a silly smile break over the face in the doorway. "'Do you want anything, Ellen?' asked the old woman at the fire. But she did not answer the question and said, "'I thought it was Josephine. I thought you were Josephine, Stephen.' And repeating this several times she fell to laughing feebly. He was sitting in the midst of a children's party at Harold's Cross. His silent, watchful manner had grown upon him and he took little part in the games. The children, wearing the spoils of their crackers, danced and romped noisily, and though he tried to share their merriment he felt himself a gloomy figure amid the gay cocked hats and sunbonnets. But when he had sung his song and withdrawn into a snug corner of the room he began to taste the joy of his loneliness. The mirth, which in the beginning of the evening had seemed to him false and trivial, was like a soothing air to him passing gaily by his senses, hiding from other eyes the feverish agitation of his blood, while through the circling of the dancers and amid the music and laughter her glance travelled to his corner, flattering, taunting, searching, exciting his heart. In the hall the children who had stayed latest were putting on their things. The party was over. She had thrown a shawl about her and as they went together towards the tram sprays of her fresh warm breath flew gaily above her cowled head and her shoes tapped blithely on the glassy road. It was the last tram. The lank brown horses knew it and shook their bells to the clear night in admonition. The conductor talked with the driver, both nodding often in the green light of the lamp. On the empty seats of the tram were scattered a few coloured tickets. No sound of footsteps came up or down the road. No sound broke the peace of the night save when the lank brown horses rubbed their noses together and shook their bells. They seemed to listen, he on the upper step and she on the lower. She came up to his step many times and went down to hers again between their phrases, and once or twice stood close beside him for some moments on the upper step, forgetting to go down, and then went down. His heart danced upon her movements like a cork upon a tide. He heard what her eyes said to him from beneath their cowl and knew that in some dim past, whether in life or reverie, he had heard their tale before. He saw her urge her vanities, her fine dress and sash and long black stockings, and knew that he had yielded to them a thousand times. Yet a voice within him spoke above the noise of his dancing heart asking him would he take her gift to which he had only to stretch out his hand. And he remembered the day when he and Eileen had stood looking into the hotel grounds, watching the waiters running up a trail of bunting on the flagstaff and the fox-terrier scampering to and fro on the sunny lawn, and how, all of a sudden, she had broken out into a peal of laughter and had run down the sloping curve of the path. Now as then he stood listlessly in his place seemingly a tranquil watcher of the scene before him. She too wants me to catch hold of her, he thought. That's why she came with me to the tram. I could easily catch hold of her when she comes up to my step. Nobody is looking. I could hold her and kiss her. But he didn't either, and when he was sitting alone in the deserted tram, he tore his ticket into shreds and stared gloomily at the corrugated footboard. The next day, he sat at his table in the bare upper room for many hours. Before him lay a new pen, a new bottle of ink, and a new emerald exercise. From force of habit he had written at the top of the first page the initial letters of the Jesuit motto, A.M.D.G. On the first line of the page appeared the title of the verses he was trying to write. To E.C. He knew it was right to begin so, for he had seen similar titles in the collected poems of Lord Byron. When he had written this title and drawn an ornamental line underneath, he fell into a daydream and began to draw diagrams on the cover of the book. He saw himself sitting at his table in Bray the morning after the discussion at the Christmas dinner-table, trying to write a poem about Parnell on the back of one of his father's second moiety notices. But his brain had then refused to grapple with the theme, and, desisting, he had covered the page with the names and addresses of certain of his classmates. Roderick Kickham, John Lawton, Anthony MacSwiney, Simon Moonan. Now it seemed as if he would fail again, but by dint of brooding on the incident he thought himself into confidence. During this process all those elements which he deemed common and insignificant fell out of the scene. There remained no trace of the tram itself, nor of the trammen, nor of the horses. Nor did he and she appear vividly. The verses told only of the night and the balmy breeze and the maiden luster of the moon. Some undefined sorrow was hidden in the hearts of the protagonists as they stood in silence beneath the leafless trees, and when the moment of farewell had come the kiss, which had been withheld by one, was given by both. After this the letters L.D.S. were written at the foot of the page, and having hidden the book he went into his mother's bedroom and gazed at his face for a long time in the mirror of her dressing-table. But his long spell of leisure and liberty was drawing to its end. One evening his father came home full of news which kept his tongue busy all through dinner. Stephen had been awaiting his father's return, for there had been mutton hash that day, and he knew that his father would make him dip his bread in the gravy. But he did not relish the hash, for the mention of clongos had coated his palate with a scum of disgust. "'I walked banging to him.' said Mr. Daedalus, for the fourth time, just at the corner of the square. "'Then I suppose,' said Mrs. Daedalus, "'he will be able to arrange it, I mean, about Belvedere.' "'Of course he will,' said Mr. Daedalus. "'Don't I tell you he's provincial of the order now?' "'I never liked the idea of sending him to the Christian Brothers myself,' said Mrs. Daedalus. "'Christian Brothers be damned,' said Mr. Daedalus. "'Is it with Paddy Stink or Mickey Mudd?' "'No, let him stick to the Jesuits in God's name since he began with them. "'They'll be of service to him in years after. "'Those are the fellows that can get you a position. "'And they're a very rich order, aren't they, Simon?' "'Rather, they live well, I tell you. "'You saw their table at Clongo's, fed up by God-like gamecocks. "'Mr. Dedalus pushed his plate over to Stephen "'and bade him finish what was on it. "'Now then, Stephen,' he said, "'You must put your shoulder to the wheel, old chap. "'You've had a fine long holiday.' "'Oh, I'm sure he worked work very hard now,' said Mrs. Dedalus. "'especially when he has Morris with him.' "'Oh, holy Paul, I forgot about Morris,' said Mr. Dedalus. "'Here, Morris, come here, you thick-headed ruffian. "'Do you know I'm going to send you to a college "'where they'll teach you to spell C.A.T. Cat, "'and I'll buy you a -A 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 nice little penny-handkerchief "'to keep your nose dry. "'Won't that be grand fun?' Morris grinned at his father and then at his brother. Mr. Dedalus screwed his glass into his eye and stared hard at both his sons. Stephen mumbled his bread without answering his father's gaze. By the by, said Mr. Dedalus at length, the rector, or provincial, rather, was telling me that story about you and Father Dolan. You're an impudent thief, he said. Oh, he didn't, Simon. Not he, said Mr. Dedalus. But he gave me a great account of the whole affair we were chatting you know and one word borrowed another and by the way who do you think he told me will get that job in the corporation but i'll tell you that after well as i was saying we were chatting away quite friendly and he asked me did our friend here wear glasses still and then he told me the whole story and was he annoyed simon annoyed not he manly little chap he said mr dedalus imitated the mincing nasal tone of the provincial Father Dolan and I, when I told them all at dinner about it, Father Dolan and I had a great laugh over it. You'd better mind yourself, Father Dolan, said I, or young Dedalus'll send you up for twice nine. We had a famous laugh together over it. Ha <laughs> Mr Dedalus turned to his wife and interjected in his natural voice, Shows you the spirit in which they take the boys there. Oh, a Jesuit for your life for diplomacy. He reassumed the provincial's voice and repeated, I told them all at dinner about it, and Father Dolan and I and all of us, we had a hearty laugh together over it. (laughs) The night of the Whitsuntide play had come, and Stephen, from the window of the dressing-room, looked out on the small grass plot across which lines of Chinese lanterns were stretched. He watched the visitors come down the steps from the house and pass into the theatre. Stewarts in evening dress, old Belvedereans, loitered in groups about the entrance to the theatre, and ushered in the visitors with ceremony. Under the sudden glow of a lantern he could recognise the smiling face of a priest. The Blessed Sacrament had been removed from the tabernacle, and the first benches had been driven back so as to leave the dais of the altar and the space before it free. Against the walls stood companies of barbells and Indian clubs. The dumbbells were piled in one corner and in the midst of countless hillocks of gymnasium shoes and sweaters and singlets and untidy brown parcels there stood the stout leather-jacketed vaulting-horse waiting its turn to be carried up on the stage and set in the middle of the winning team at the end of the gymnastic display stephen though in deference to his reputation for essay-writing he had been elected secretary to the gymnasium had had no part in the first section of the programme but in the play which formed the second section he had the chief part, that of a farcical pedagogue. He had been cast for it on account of his stature and grave manners, for he was now at the end of his second year at Belvedere and in number two. A score of the younger boys in white knickers and singlets came pattering down from the stage through the vestry and to the chapel. The vestry and chapel were peopled with eager masters and boys. The plump, bald sergeant-major was testing with his foot the springboard of the vaulting-horse. The lean young man in a long overcoat, who was to give a special display of intricate club-swinging, stood near watching with interest, his silver-coated clubs peeping out of his deep side-pockets. The hollow rattle of the wooden dumbbells was heard as another team made ready to go up on the stage, and in another moment the excited prefect was hustling the boys through the vestry like a flock of geese, flapping the wings of his soutane nervously and crying to the laggards to make haste. A little troop of Neapolitan peasants were practising their steps at the end of the chapel, some circling their arms above their heads, some swaying their baskets of paper violets and curtseying. In a dark corner of the chapel at the gospel side of the altar a stout old lady knelt amid her copious black skirts. When she stood up. A pink-dressed figure, wearing a curly golden wig and an old-fashioned straw sunbonnet, with black penciled eyebrows and cheeks delicately rouged and powdered, was discovered. A low murmur of curiosity ran round the chapel at the discovery of this girlish figure. One of the prefects, smiling and nodding his head, approached the dark corner and, having bowed to the stout old lady, said pleasantly, "'Is this a beautiful young lady or a doll that you have here, Mrs. Tallon?' Then, bending down to peer at the smiling painted face under the leaf of the bonnet, he exclaimed, "'No, upon my word, I believe it's little Bertie Tallinn, after all.' Stephen, at his post by the window, heard the old lady and the priest laugh together and heard the boy's murmur of admiration behind him as they passed forward to see the little boy who had to dance the sunbonnet dance by himself. A movement of impatience escaped him. He let the edge of the blind fall and, stepping down from the bench on which he had been standing, walked out of the chapel. He passed out of the schoolhouse and halted under the shed that flanked the garden. From the theatre opposite came the muffled noise of the audience and sudden brazen clashes of the soldiers' band. The light spread upwards from the glass roof, making the theatre seem a festive arc, anchored among the hulks of houses, her frail cables of lanterns looping her to her moorings. A side-door of the theatre opened suddenly, and a shaft of light flew across the grass plots, a sudden burst of music issued from the ark, the prelude of a waltz, and when the side-door closed again the listener could hear the faint rhythm of the music. The sentiment of the opening bars, their languor and supple movement, evoked the incommunicable emotion which had been the cause of all his day's unrest and of his impatient movement of a moment before. His unrest issued from him like a wave of sound, and on the tide of flowing music the ark was journeying, trailing her cables of lanterns in her wake. Then a noise like dwarf artillery broke the movement. It was the clapping that greeted the entry of the dumbbell team on the stage. At the far end of the shed near the street a speck of pink light showed in the darkness, and as he walked towards it he became aware of a faint aromatic odour. Two boys were standing in the shelter of a doorway, smoking, and before he reached them he had recognized Heron by his voice. "'Here comes the noble Dedalus," cried a high throaty voice. "'Welcome to our trusty friend.' This welcome ended in a soft peal of merciless laughter as Heron salaamed and then began to poke the ground with his cane. "'Here I am,' said Stephen, halting and glancing from Heron to his friend. The latter was a stranger to him. But in the darkness, by the aid of the glowing cigarette-tips, he could make out a pale dandyish face over which a smile was travelling slowly, a tall overcoated figure and a hard hat. Heron did not trouble himself about an introduction but said instead I was just telling my friend Wallace what a lark it'd be tonight if you took off the rector in the part of the schoolmaster. It'd be a ripping good joke. Heron made a poor attempt to imitate for his friend Wallace the rector's pedantic bass and then, laughing at his failure, asked Stephen to do it. "'Go on, Dedlas, he urged. "'You could take him off rippingly. He that will not hear the church, ah, let him be to thee, ah, as the heathen, are ah, and the publican, are ah. The imitation was prevented by a mild expression of anger from Wallace, in whose mouthpiece the cigarette had become too tightly wedged. "'Damn this blankety-blank holder!' he said, taking it from his mouth and smiling and frowning upon it tolerantly. It's always getting stuck like that, do you use a holder? I don't smoke. answered Stephen. No said Heron. Deadless is a model youth. He doesn't smoke and he doesn't go to bazaars and he doesn't flirt and he doesn't damn anything or damn all. Stephen shook his head and smiled in his rival's flushed and mobile face, beaked like a bird's. He had often thought it strange that Vincent Heron had a bird's face as well as a bird's name. A shock of pale hair lay on the forehead like a ruffled crest. The forehead was narrow and bony, and a thin hooked nose stood out between the close-set prominent eyes, which were light and inexpressive. The rivals were school friends. They sat together in class, knelt together in the chapel, talked together after beads over their lunches. As the fellows in Number One were undistinguished dullards, Stephen and Heron had been, during the year, the virtual heads of the school it was they who went up to the rector together to ask for a free day or to get a fellow off oh by the way said heron suddenly i saw your governor going in the smile waned on stephen's face any allusion made to his father by a fellow or by a master put his calm to rout in a moment he waited in timorous silence to hear what heron might say next heron however nudged him expressively with his elbow and said you're a sly dog why so said stephen you think butter wouldn't melt in your mouth said heron but i'm afraid you're a sly dog might i ask you what you are talking about said stephen urbanely indeed you might answered heron we saw her wallace didn't we and deucedly pretty she is too and inquisitive and what part does stephen take mr dedalus and will stephen not sing mr dedalus your governor was staring at her through that eyeglass of his for all he was worth So that I think the old man has found you out, too. I wouldn't care a bit, by Jove. She's ripping, isn't she, Wallace?" "'Not half bad,' answered Wallace, quietly, as he placed his holder once more in a corner of his mouth. A shaft of momentary anger flew through Stephen's mind at these indelicate allusions in the hearing of a stranger. For him there was nothing amusing in a girl's interest and regard. All day he had thought of nothing but her leave-taking on the steps of the tram at Harold's Cross the stream of moody emotions it had made to course through him and the poem he had written about it all day he had imagined a new meeting with her for he knew that she was to come to the play the old restless moodiness had again filled his breast as it had done on the night of the party but had not found an outlet in verse the growth and knowledge of two years of boyhood stood between then and now forbidding such an outlet and all day the stream of gloomy tenderness within him had started forth and returned upon itself in dark courses and eddies, wearying him in the end until the pleasantry of the prefect and the painted little boy had drawn from him a movement of impatience. "'So you might as well admit,' Heron went on, "'that we fairly found you out this time. You can't play the saint on me any more. That's one sure five. A soft peal of mirthless laughter escaped from his lips, and, bending down as before, he struck Stephen lightly across the calf of his leg with his cane as if in jesting reproof. Stephen's moment of anger had already passed. He was neither flattered nor confused, but simply wished the banter to end. He scarcely resented what had seemed to him a silly indelicateness, for he knew that the adventure in his mind stood in no danger from these words, and his face mirrored his rival's false smile. Admit, repeated Heron, striking him again with his cane across the calf of his leg. The stroke was playful but not so lightly given as the first one had been. Stephen felt the skin tingle and glow slightly and almost painlessly, and bowing submissively, as if to meet his companion's jesting mood, began to recite the confitior. The episode ended well, for both Heron and Wallace laughed indulgently at the irreverence. The confession came only from Stephen's lips, and while they spoke the words a sudden memory had carried him to another scene called up as if by magic at the moment when he had noted the faint cruel dimples at the corners of Heron's smiling lips, and had felt the familiar stroke of the cane against his calf, and had heard the familiar word of admonition, "'Admit!' It was towards the close of his first term in the college when he was in number six. His sensitive nature was still smarting under the lashes of an undivined and squalid way of life. His soul was still disquieted and cast down by the dull phenomenon of Dublin. He had emerged from a 2 years spell of reverie to find himself in the midst of a new scene. Every event and figure of which affected him intimately, disheartened him, or allured, and, whether alluring or disheartening, filled him always with unrest and bitter thoughts. All the leisure which his school-life left him was passed in the company of subversive writers whose jibes and violence of speech set up a ferment in his brain before they passed out of it into his crude writings. The essay was for him the chief labour of his week, and every Tuesday as he marched from home to the school he read his fate in the incidents of the way, pitting himself against some figure ahead of him and quickening his pace to outstrip it before a certain goal was reached, or planting his steps scrupulously on the spaces of the patchwork of the pathway and telling himself that he would be first and not first in the weekly essay. On a certain Tuesday the course of his triumphs was rudely broken. Mr. Tate, the English master, pointed his finger at him and said bluntly, "'This fellow has heresy in his essay.' A hush fell on the class. Mr. Tate did not break it but dug with his hand between his thighs while his heavily starched linen creaked about his neck and wrists. Stephen did not look up. It was a raw spring morning and his eyes were still smarting and weak. He was conscious of failure and of detection of the squalor of his own mind and home, and felt against his neck the raw edge of his turned and jagged collar. A short loud laugh from Mr. Tate set the class more at ease. Ha, "'Perhaps you didn't know that,' he said. "'Where?' asked Stephen. Mr. Tate withdrew his delving hand and spread out the essay. "'Here. It's about the Creator and the soul. Mm, ah without a possibility of ever reaching nearer. That's heresy. Stephen murmured, I meant, without a possibility of ever reaching. It was a submission, and Mr. Tate, appeased, folded up the essay and passed it across to him, saying, Oh, ah, ever reaching. That's another story. But the class was not so soon appeased. Though nobody spoke to him of the affair after class, he could feel about him a vague general malignant joy. A few nights after this public chiding he was walking with a letter along the Drumcondra road when he heard a voice cry, "'Halt!' he turned and saw three boys of his own class coming towards him in the dusk. It was Heron who had called out, and as he marched forward between his two attendants he cleft the air before him with a thin cane in time to their steps. Boland, his friend, marched beside him, a large grin on his face, while Nash came on a few steps behind blowing from the pace and wagging his great red head. As soon as the boys had turned into Clonliffe Road together they began to speak about books and writers, saying what books they were reading and how many books there were in their father's bookcases at home. Stephen listened to them in some wonderment, for Boland was the dunce and Nash the idler of the class. In fact, after some talk about their favourite writers, Nash declared for Captain Marriott, who, he said, was the greatest writer. Fudge, said Heron. Ask Dedlas. Who's the greatest writer, Dedlas? Stephen noted the mockery in the question and said, "'Of prose, do you mean?' "'Yes.' "'Newman, I think.' "'Is it Cardinal Newman?' asked Boland. "'Yes,' answered Stephen. The grin broadened on Nash's freckled face as he turned to Stephen and said, "'And do you like Cardinal Newman, Dedlas? "'Oh, many say that Newman has the best prose style,' Heron said to the other two in explanation. "'Of course, he's not a poet.' "'And who is the best poet, Heron?' asked Boland. "'Lord Tennyson, of course,' answered Heron. "'Oh, yes, Lord Tennyson,' said Nash. "'We have all his poetry at home in a book.' At this Stephen forgot the silent vows he had been making and burst out. "'Tennyson, a poet. Why, he's only a rhymester.' I'll oh, get out,' said Heron. "'Everyone knows that Tennyson is the greatest poet.' "'And who do you think is the greatest poet?' asked Boland, nudging his neighbour. "'Byron, of course,' answered Stephen. Heron gave the lead, and all three joined in a scornful laugh. "'What are you laughing at?' asked Stephen. "'You,' said Heron. "'Byron, the greatest poet. He's only a poet for uneducated people.' "'He must be a fine poet,' said Boland. "'You may keep your mouth shut,' said Stephen, turning on him boldly. "'All you know about poetry is what you wrote up on the slates in the yard "'and were going to be sent to the loft for.' Boland, in fact, was said to have written on the slates of the yard a couplet about a classmate of his, who often rode home from the college on a pony. As Tyson was riding into Jerusalem, he fell and hurt his Alec Caffuzalum, This thrust put the two lieutenants to silence, but Heron went on. In any case, Byron was a heretic, and immoral too. "'I don't care what he was,' cried Stephen hotly. "'You don't care whether he was a heretic or not,' said Nash. "'What do you know about it?' shouted Stephen. "'You never read a line of anything in your life except a trans or Boland, either.' "'I know that Byron was a bad man,' said Boland. "'Here, catch hold of this heretic.' Heron called out. In a moment Stephen was a prisoner. "'Tate made you book up the other day,' Heron went on, about the heresy in your essay. "'I'll tell him tomorrow, said Boland. "'Will you?' said Stephen. "'You'd be afraid to open your lips.' "'Afraid?' "'Aye, afraid of your life.' "'Behave yourself!' cried Heron, cutting at Stephen's legs with his cane." It was the signal for their onset. Nash pinioned his arms behind while Boland seized a long cabbage stump which was lying in the gutter. Struggling and kicking under the cuts of the cane and the blows of the knotty stump, Stephen was borne back against the barbed-wire fence. "'Admit that Byron was no good. No! Admit! No! Admit! No! No!' At last, after a fury of plunges, he wrenched himself free. His tormentor set off towards Jones's road, laughing and jeering at him while he, half blinded with tears, stumbled on, clenching his fists madly and sobbing. While he was still repeating the confitior amid the indulgent laughter of his hearers, and while the scenes of that malignant episode were still passing sharply and swiftly before his mind, he wondered why he bore no malice now to those who had tormented him. He had not forgotten a whit of their cowardice and cruelty, but the memory of it called forth no anger from him. All the descriptions of fierce love and hatred which he had met in the books had seemed to him, therefore, unreal. Even that night, as he stumbled homewards along Jones's road, he had felt that some power was divesting him of that sudden woven anger as easily as a fruit is divested of its soft, ripe peel. He remained standing with his two companions at the end of the shed, listening idly to their talk or to the bursts of applause in the theatre. She was sitting there among the others, perhaps waiting for him to appear. He tried to recall her appearance but could not. He could remember only that she had worn a shawl about her head like a cowl and that her dark eyes had invited and unnerved him. He wondered had he been in her thoughts as she had been in his. Then in the dark, and unseen by the other two, he rested the tips of the fingers of one hand upon the palm of the other hand scarcely touching it lightly. But the pressure of her fingers had been lighter and steadier, and suddenly the memory of their touch traversed his brain and body like an invisible wave. A boy came towards them, running along under the shed. He was excited and breathless. "'Oh, Dedalus," he cried. is in a great bake about you. You're to go in at once and get dressed for the play. Hurry up, you better.' "'He's coming now!' said heron to the messenger with a haughty drawl when he wants to the boy turned to heron and repeated but doyle is in an awful bake will you tell doyle with my best compliments that i damned his eyes answered heron well i must go now said stephen who cared little for such points of honour i wouldn't said heron damn me if i would that's no way to send for one of the senior boys in a bake indeed I think it's quite enough that you're taking part in this bally old play. This spirit of quarrelsome comradeship which he had observed lately in his rival had not seduced Stephen from his habits of quiet obedience. He mistrusted the turbulence and doubted the sincerity of such comradeship which seemed to him a sorry anticipation of manhood. The question of honour here raised was, like all such questions, trivial to him, while his mind had been pursuing its intangible phantoms, and turning in a resolution from such pursuit he had heard about him the constant voices of his father and of the masters urging him to be a gentleman above all things and urging him to be a good catholic above all things these voices had now come to be hollow sounding in his ears when the gymnasium had been opened he had heard another voice urging him to be strong and manly and healthy and when the movement towards national revival had begun to be felt in the college yet another voice had bidden him to be true to his country and help to raise up her language and tradition. In the profane world, as he foresaw, a worldly voice would bid him raise up his father's fallen state by his labours, and, meanwhile, the voice of his school comrades urged him to be a decent fellow, to shield others from blame, or to beg them off and to do his best to get free days for the school. And it was the din of these hollow-sounding voices that made him halt irresolutely in the pursuit of phantoms. He gave them ear only for a time But he was happy only when he was far from them, beyond their call, alone or in the company of phantasmal comrades. In the vestry a plump, fresh-faced Jesuit and an elderly man in shabby blue clothes were dabbling in a case of paints and chalks. The boys who had been painted walked about or stood still awkwardly, touching their faces in a gingerly fashion with their furtive finger-tips. In the middle of the vestry a young Jesuit, who was then on a visit to the college, stood rocking himself rhythmically from the tips of his toes to his heels and back again, his hands thrust well forward into his side pockets. His small head set off with glossy red curls and his newly shaven face agreed well with the spotless decency of his soutane and with his spotless shoes. As he watched this swaying form and tried to read for himself the legend of the priest's mocking smile there came into Stephen's memory a saying which he had heard from his father before he had been sent to Clongos, that you could always tell a Jesuit by the style of his clothes. At the same moment he thought he saw a likeness between his father's mind and that of the smiling well-dressed priest, and he was aware of some desecration of the priest's office or of the vestry itself, whose silence was now routed by loud talk and joking and its air pungent with the smells of the gas-jets and the grease. While his forehead was being wrinkled and his jaws painted black and blue by the elderly man, he listened distractedly to the voice of the plump young Jesuit which bade him speak up and make his points clearly. He could hear the band playing The Lily of Killarney and knew that in a few moments the curtain would go up. He felt no stage fright but the thought of the part he had to play humiliated him. A remembrance of some of his lines made a sudden flush rise to his painted cheeks. He saw her serious, alluring eyes watching him from among the audience, and their image at once swept away his scruples, leaving his will compact. Another nature seemed to have been lent him. The infection of the excitement and youth about him entered into and transformed his moody mistrustfulness. For one rare moment he seemed to be clothed in the real apparel of boyhood, and, as he stood in the wings among the other players, he shared the common mirth amid which the drop-scene was hauled upwards by two able-bodied priests with violent jerks and all awry. A few moments after he found himself on the stage amid the garish gas and the dim scenery, acting before the innumerable faces of the void. It surprised him to see that the play which he had known at rehearsals for a disjointed lifeless thing had suddenly assumed a life of its own. It seemed now to play itself he and his fellow-actors aiding it with their parts. When the curtain fell on the last scene he heard the void filled with applause and through a rift in a side-scene saw the simple body before which he had acted magically deformed, the void of faces breaking at all points and falling asunder into busy groups. He left the stage quickly and rid himself of his mummery and passed out through the chapel into the college garden. Now that the play was over, his nerves cried for some further adventure. He hurried onwards as if to overtake it. The doors of the theatre were all open and the audience had emptied out. On the lines which he had fancied the moorings of an ark a few lanterns swung in the night breeze, flickering cheerlessly. He mounted the steps from the garden in haste, eager that some prey should not elude him, and forced his way through the crowd in the hall and past the two Jesuits who stood watching the exodus and bowing and shaking hands with the visitors. He pushed onward nervously, feigning a still greater haste and faintly conscious of the smiles and stares and nudges which his powdered head left in its wake. When he came out on the steps he saw his family waiting for him at the first lamp. In a glance he noted that every figure of the group was familiar and ran down the steps angrily. "'I have to leave a message down in Georgia Street,' he said to his father quickly. "'I'll be home after you.' Without waiting for his father's questions he ran across the road and began to walk at breakneck speed down the hill. He hardly knew where he was walking. Pride and hope and desire, like crushed herbs in his heart, sent up vapours of maddening incense before the eyes of his mind. He strode down the hill amid the tumult of sudden risen vapours of wounded pride and fallen hope and baffled desire. They streamed upwards before his anguished eyes in dense and maddening fumes and passed away above him till at last the air was clear and cold again. A film still veiled his eyes but they burned no longer. A power akin to that which had often made anger or resentment fall from him brought his steps to rest. He stood still and gazed up at the sombre porch of the morgue and from that to the dark cobbled laneway at its side. He saw the word lots on the wall of the lane and breathed slowly the rank, heavy air. That is horse piss and rotted straw, he thought. It is a good odour to breathe. It will calm my heart. My heart is quite calm now. I will go back. End of chapter 2, part 1